0: I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in, and welcome to our tribe. Hey there, Solar Warrior. Welcome back to Suncast. Thank you so much for giving us a chance to earn your attention. If you're new here, I really want to appreciate you lending us your ears and the only non-renewable resource you've got, that is your time. Promise we will help make it a useful investment therein. Today's entrepreneur has come to us to help us understand how we think about the concept of measuring our carbon footprint, the carbon embodied in the clean energy transition that many, if not all of us, are about and very in- interested in. Winbo She is a passionate technologist with a strong background in smart energy innovations with his phd in power systems and particularly focused on smart grids wimbo has gone quite far down the rabbit hole of understanding how the embodied energy of our various grid systems and power systems can be calculated such that we can do what we all aim to do reduce our carbon footprint leave a world worth living in for generations to come and help many businesses figure out exactly how they can demonstrate and understand how they're using electricity. How, how do you know what uh, the carbon footprint of the electricity in your own home is? We're going to talk a little bit about that and more, including his previous entrepreneurial engagements and where Singularity Energy, his current business, is headed I hope that you're subscribed to the show as that'll ensure that you won't miss out on our twice weekly content just like this, helping you dig in and build a career and increase your income and influence in the clean energy transition. Of course, you can check out our more than 550 additional clean energy founder stories and startup advice over at mysuncast.com. For now, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Wendell, I want to say hello, first of all, and thank you for being the first formal interview of the new year. I expect that I won't sound as rusty as I feel doing this interview, but it's great to finally get a chance to hop on the phone with you. And I know that those tuning in are going to get a ton of value from the conversation we're going to have. So first, welcome to Suncast.
1: Thank you so much, Nico, for having me today. Very nice to meet you again, and very excited to share some of the experiences and my journey so far with all the audience today.
0: Well, Wimbo, as I mentioned a few moments ago, you've had predominantly an academic journey, which is not uncommon in the solar and broader energy space. And that academic journey has led you down the path of forming a business. I would love to hear you describe that problem that you identified that brought you to the place that you felt you needed to start a business to try and solve it. But tell it to me as though maybe you're talking to my tween son who looks up to you as a as a as an engineer a future engineer.
1: So you know when talking about the problem that we're trying to solve, let me start by asking you a very simple question, Nicole. Do you understand or do you know how much carbon that you consume every month for your home?
0: No clue. And I've been in the industry sector for nearly 20 years. I have no idea.
1: And you care about that, right? I do. Yeah. So there are- I have no way Mm -hmm. way to calculate it as far as (laughs) as (laughs) Right. So that is a problem that we're trying to solve. So there Mm. are a lot of people and businesses, governments, who wants to solve the climate change problem, who wants to lower their emissions. But the first question that you ask is how much- carbon that I'm actually emitting as a result of my consumption of electricity, for example, right? And that question seems very simple and it seems very straightforward, but most of the time, like 99% of the time, you don't have an answer to that, to that question in a very accurate way, in a robust way, right? So that's the reason why when I first started the company three or four years ago, you know, I wasn't really looking at carbon. At that time,
0: Wimbo, I really appreciate you phrasing it or sort of placing that container for us because I'm certain I'm not the only one here who carries not a little bit of guilt about not knowing how to quantify my own carbon footprint when I have for 16 years shouted from the rooftops. We need to lower our emissions. We need to use renewable sources of fuel. You're absolutely right. You're putting your finger in a sore spot for the industry, candidly—not a blind spot, but a sore spot. Would you introduce me then to Singularity Energy, the the entity that you created to solve this problem? Why should I, as a an observer, uh, care that Singularity Energy exists?
1: Yeah, let me start by telling uh, you know a little bit more about the background of the company, so that you will have more context of how Singularity evolved to, you know, to solve this carbon data problem, right? So when I first started the company uh, three or four years ago, I wasn't looking at carbon at all. Uh, As you mentioned, you know, I have a power system background with a focus on smart grid. So initially, the idea of the company was to commercialize some of the energy management research that I did at PhD. So it was things like, you know, how to charge your battery in the optimal way to, you know, maximize your financial savings, right? So things like that. But when we started to talk to some of our early prospects, uh, maybe people like you, right? People who care about the environment, people who care about lowering their carbon emissions, they started to ask us questions like, oh, what is my carbon emissions? How does battery storage or EV charging or some of the other electrification, you know, uh, uh, technology can help me lower my emissions? So like people generally have some, you know, understanding or some assumptions that, you know, going electric is going to be beneficial for the environment. It's going to lower the emissions, but how to quantify that? Do you really, you know, understand the emission impact of those decisions, right? So those are some of the typical questions that I got in the early stage of, uh, you know, the customer discovery process, right? And then I realized even for a PhD in the space, I didn't have good answers to those questions as well. Because it may sound like a very simple question. How much is your carbon? But when you really dig deeper, it's not that so straightforward. Because the power that you're getting from the grid is a mix of so many different sources. right? If you have like local generation from your solar rooftop, things might be a little bit simpler. Because you're going to use your power and you know that's 100% clean. But when you're using the power from the bigger grid that is shared by millions of people, right? And then there are so many different types of generators on the grid. Then that question becomes a little bit hard. Uh, So that's why, you know, we started to really dive deeper into the carbon space, starting with the data problem, right? Like how can we really understand and tell the generation sources on the grid that it's gonna supply your electricity to your home, to your businesses, And then use that as a foundation for you to understand your carbon footprints or the baseline. Then it's not only about the data, right? It's like the data is only the starting point. It's only about visibility into carbon. But what is more important, how can you leverage that data to inform better decisions to decarbonize in a better way, right? Because people normally say you can't manage something that you cannot measure, right? Measurement is the first step. Then the the natural next step is that you want to utilize those data to inform data-driven decisions, like better quantifiable decisions to really understand, like, what are the levers that you can take to decarbonize your businesses, your, you know, operations, your home, uh, so that we can accelerate the energy transition, right, to really achieve a 100% carbon-free power grid in the future.
0: Now, for those who aren't looking through your LinkedIn as they're listening to this, uh, I want to kind of connect a couple of dots for folks. You have a pretty deep level of understanding and, uh, and a very concrete sort of framework of research for the energy sector. You were a graduate student researcher at UCLA's. Smart Grid Energy Research Center for more than four years. It was the foundational work of your doctoral degree, and you have spent your postdoctoral at Harvard University, relatively well-known institution, thinking about how to, to leverage that learning. As you surveyed the landscape, I think the question that comes up for me, not knowing much about this sector, the the measurement, the data and analysis pieces, what solutions exist today for your prospective customers?
1: So today, when people are trying to measure or calculate their emissions, most often they're using an emission factor to translate their energy consumption or electricity consumption measured in kilowatt hours or megawatt hours into carbon. So that emission factor is a key to do the translation. And typically, people are using the emission factor from EPA eGrid. And that emission factor normally is a two to three years old annual average, regional average number. So that doesn't give you what is happening on the grid more specifically, right? It's like a very rough picture. So sometimes you can think of the data that we're providing in some way similar to the weather data three-year-old annual average weather data is not going to tell you anything.
0: <laughs> I get it. Now, what yeah. needed to be true from the time that you started at UCLA in 2011, where mm-hmm. you know we both saw the solar industry start the parabolic yes. curve up and to the right, mm-hmm. what needed to be true from then to now, in order for you to be able to yeah. actually
1: extract real-time yeah, exactly. data that just wasn't possible when you and I yeah. got in this industry. Yeah, I think it was not only about the possibility, but it was also because the problem changed. The reason why that EPA grid number makes sense in the past was because there were not so much variations on the grid back then, right? If you rely on a 100% fossil fuel power system, then you wouldn't see too much changes in terms of carbon, right? So the reason why the problem is a different problem now is because now we have a lot of renewables on the grid. Yes. You have wind, you have solar, <laughs> and everybody knows that those resources are very fluctuating. So that's why today, if you look at the carbon intensity, uh, which is a measurement of how carbon-intensive intense intensive your grid is, so that metric becomes much more dynamic,
0: so, with renewable energy in particular, an intermittent resource, there are fluctuations in carbon intensity on the grid mix in a very dynamic manner, and it's different state to state, municipality to municipality, especially with co-ops and and munis and different procurement strategies at at each level of of the process. So, as you survey kind of the last ten years, and we were doing a look back of like what exists today for customers that you are leapfrogging with a technological approach to solve these problems and to give them data driven decision mm-hmm. uh, tools but what needed to be true for your business singularity energy mm-hmm. to succeed like what what happened over the last 10 years that that gave you the um, the tools to be able to to do this
1: yeah I think first of all definitely it's about data as you said right because we're a data business we're a data analytics company right we need to get the inputs from the system operators from you know EPA, EIA, you know that is a foundation for us. So definitely like the increasing uh, amount of data about the grid about emissions those are the foundation. So today we started with public data sources as the first step because even with public data sources, you don't have the direct carbon measurements or the direct carbon intensity metrics from those sources today and things are changing by the way yeah things are changing because more and more people are asking for that right like they're asking for oh what is the carbon intensity of the grid they started to ask their utilities they started to ask their grid operators so that's why one of the trends that i have been you know i have been uh, witnessing in the past few years is like more and more people are starting to become more uh, uh, you know aware of the problem Right. So, so that's why, you know, like, you know, as I said, like the first step for us is to utilize those public data sources and we do the transformation, right. So we transform those, uh, fuel mix data, the generation data coming from the grid operators, uh, combine that with the EPA emissioning, you know, emission monitoring system data to give you a pretty good, uh, high resolution picture about your emissions intensity in your grid on a real time basis. But that is not the best data yeah. that you may really want. Because to Go your ahead. point, emissions are time-dependent, but also are location-dependent, right? It's like when you're talking about California, as you can probably imagine, Northern California, Southern California, pretty different, right? Like San Francisco versus Los Angeles versus San Diego, pretty different. But today, you wouldn't be able to get that data because it's beyond the public domain, right? Right. In order to access that next level of accuracy, of reliability in the data that we provide, then you need to unlock the proprietary data from the system. And that's exactly what we're trying to do now. Uh, You know, last year, uh, we started to work with some of the utilities. One of those utilities is Eversource in the Northeastern area, right? So the idea is to try to, you know, work with them, you know, get access to the proprietary uh, information about the grid and then start generating much more uh, granular carbon intensity and, and, you know, painting that carbon picture at the local level, you know, as much as possible. Again, I want to reuse that analogy to weather data, right? like, if you think about weather information, annual average, national average doesn't give you any useful information. And the same thing on the carbon side, right? If you're using a... California average probably won't matter too much if you're in a specific location, right? So that's why, you know, starting with the public data as a first step, but that's not the ideal solution. You know, we want to give you the ideal solution, which, which is going to require some of the inputs and data from the system operators and utilities.
0: For those unfamiliar, Eversource is a major utility in the Northeast of the United States that consolidated a handful of, uh, of regulated utilities or now is a regulated utility in, um, In the Boston area, Massachusetts and Connecticut, the question I had for you because I anticipated you talk about Eversource is who do you sell to and what problems do you solve for those clients? So let's take Eversource as an example for that and what the sort of underlying business model is for Singularity Energy.
1: So the fundamental problem that we're solving is a science problem to some extent, right? Like, you know, how to measure carbon emissions from, you know, the power grid and how to make better decisions. Then for different specific sectors or for different specific customers, then it means different business problems, right? So for example, like for Eversource, the business problem for them is about line losses. So Eversource is a distribution utility company which means that they don't own any generation. So when they started to look at their carbon footprint or their carbon inventory, a majority of that is due to line losses. So today, you know, like nobody has a good way of calculating the carbon emission associated with that line losses. So because first of all, you don't have the data, right? You don't have the visibility into each lines because each lines, depending on which source that it's connected to it may have very different carbon intensity. So you can imagine if there is a transmission line connecting with a fossil fuel power plant versus a transmission line connecting with offshore wind, then from a carbon perspective, it's very different.
0: Just unclear. So they don't they don't own generation. So therefore, if they have an inefficient delivery process, and just for the sake of round numbers, let's say you know there's one million units mm-hmm. to deliver. Twenty percent of those units, or twenty or two hundred thousand, get lost in line losses. What they then need to calculate is the emissions on what was delivered and the emissions yes. on what was lost. Yes, and mm-hmm. and that and the the sort of the variables around that impact they how they operate and how they can therefore reduce emissions. Okay, right,
1: and they have to report mm-hmm. that emissions in the first place. Right. By the way, you're right. Like the transmission distribution losses, typically it's going to be like five percent to six percent of the total energy that you you know, uh, that, that you that you generate. But if you look at the absolute amount, it's huge. It's humongous, right? Because you're know, you using like megawatt, you know, like millions of megawatt hours every year, right? Like six, 6% six of that is huge, right? So that's why for Eversource, the line losses, it's a major source of emissions. If you look at their sustainability reports uh, in the past few years. So that is like one of the like one of the more specific problems for utilities like Eversource to really help them understand their emissions, including line losses, including some of the other emissions. Right. And then to help them get a much more robust and reliable picture of that, and then use that to reduce emissions as a next step.
0: Can I ask a question just purely from MBA and like uh, maybe even like a question my dad would ask uh, who who is just a a blue-collar business owner. Um, Great. Now I know what my emissions are. How do I justify (gasps) the cost of that knowledge and how do I monetize it in a way that helps my investors know that this was a useful
1: thing to learn? Yeah. So there are multiple ways to think about the value, this uh, measurement that can bring to you as a business. So first of all, a lot of the businesses today are under pressure of esg right like they this is the reason why they're doing those reports right so this is this to you know to them this is a requirement almost right it's like you have to report to your investors to your uh stakeholders to your users customers so so this is like already a business need for them right so the problem that we're trying to solve for them in reporting is can you actually use more robust, defensible, granular numbers so that you feel confident in whatever results that you generate to the, you know, to the stakeholders, because people are going to look at that carbon numbers every year and then make sure that you're actually achieving whatever commitments that you made, right? Like net zero by 2023 or carbon-free whatsoever, right? You know, those uh, very ambitious decarbonization targets. And then the second one, as I said, measurement is the first step. Once you have the measurements, then you will have a much better understanding of which part of the system is more carbon intensive or those, half, you know, like it's kind of like those hotspots on the maps, right? And then you will also have, be able to identify specifically where you want to prioritize, right, so that you can leverage those data and insights to inform those decisions, right? So that you can accelerate and then measure the progress against your goals so that you're using the best information to make the best decisions to accelerate that process.
0: Wimbo, clearly your message resonates with prospective early user base like Eversource as well as early investor outreach. I'd love it if before we kind of get back into your backstory and dive into the deep parts of the technology, Pique folks interest a little bit with some of the accolades and accomplishments. Uh, you know, you've got, you've had what I consider to be a rather large uh, seed round. If you could talk a bit about that and some of the grant funding that you've received that gives credibility to the fact that you are building something that is is useful and, uh, and that folks should be paying attention to.
1: Yeah, of course. So last year we closed a $4.5 million seed round led by Energy Impact Partners and Sparrow Ventures, uh, as well as a few uh, pre-seed investors. And then we also, in addition to that $4.5 million, uh, we also got the NSF SBR grant, uh, $1 million uh, phase two grant from that. So from a company's perspective, we're uh, still pretty early, uh, close to 10 full-time employees. We 3 x our team last year, um, from like three people <laughs> to almost like 10 people now. Uh, definitely expanding our customers uh, significantly last year. We're now the only company in the industry that works with a variety of the stakeholders across the entire energy value chain, from grid operators like MISO to utilities like Eversource that we mentioned uh, to the service providers like Sense, Measurable, as well as some of the end users like Harvard Business School. So uh, we're pretty unique because the solution that we provide is relatively universal. Like everybody needs this type of information uh, for different types of use cases. Uh, So that's why, you know, we're developing, um, you know, different solutions, you know, different types of, uh, uh, you know, API dashboards, analytics services to accommodate those different use cases.
0: Wimbo, one of the things that fascinates me when I get a chance to learn more about entrepreneurs like yourself is kind of what, questions you were starving to answer early in life that led you through the decision matrix that brought singularity energy to into focus and you know most of the 550 plus episodes i've done for suncast kind of start with that and they dig into it and i want to Pay homage to that, because I feel like it's really important for folks to be able to wrap their head around kind of who you are as a not singularity energy person. Like what led to the fundamental understanding that you can do this, that you could be the founder and CEO of this kind of company. By way of that, I'd like to learn more about you as an early entrepreneur, if that's a thing, and um, and more about you kind of in your teen years and early 20s, which I think are formative mm-hmm. for who we how we believe in ourselves. What was the conversation like for you as a young person around mm. the dinner table? And probably <laughs> use this as a good example of where, yep. uh, or a good moment of like where and how you grew up and, yep. and you know, the changes that you did. Yeah, absolutely,
1: absolutely. So I grew up in a family with power system background in China. No way. So seriously. Yeah. So I was actually growing up at a power plant. What? My grandparents, my parents. They all worked in the industry. Um, so my grandparents are, um, you know, working at grid operator, uh, and then my parents wow. are working at power generation side, our power power plants. So literally, I can see, you know, the you know the generation stack, you know, those type of stuff. I wow. I, I I knew those things since, since I was like five, six, like very, very young. Wow. <laughs> so, fascinating. Yeah, so.
0: And was it a close-knit family in that regard? I mean, I know Mm -hmm. Asian culture generally is
1: close-knit. Yes, yes, yes. So, you know, since the very beginning, I was like, oh, I don't want to touch power system at all (laughs) because, you know, it's it's so boring. You know, I knew that, you know, uh, you know. Family talks were all about that, right? So (laughs) I I was trying to stay away from that power system background. So that's why uh, I chose to do something related to IT, you know, computer stuff, right? The IT stuff, uh, software, data. So that was the reason why, you know, for undergrad and also for my master's, you know, I was really focusing on, you know, on that on that front no, nothing had nothing to do with power system at all remarkable so what changed my trajectory there was during my master's study at the uh, university of uh, british columbia in vancouver my advisor at ubc at that time he was one of the first professors uh, or one of the early professors in the space who started to look at how to combine IT technology software with power system to really make the grid smarter more you know more more intelligent more um reliable more sustainable that was like the starting of the boom of smart grids over 1 decade ago during the Obama administration right there was a huge push from the government, as well as in academia, right? people are starting to look at, oh, how can we modernize the 100-year-old giant infrastructure?
0: Huge conversation. Yes. As a part of the American Reinvestment and Recovery Act. Exactly, exactly.
1: Yeah. So that was the time when I started to have a chance to look into some of the problems, which is a unique combination of power system, data science, computer science, that was part of the reason why, when I was applying to my PhD, I chose that intersection as my focus area. So that's how I got into UCLA, uh, started to focus more on smart grid. But even at that time, I wasn't so sure about is this gonna be my path or not? Right? It's like I was still fascinated by all the Silicon Valley startup stories.
0: In that regard, because you had this uh, alter ego, so to speak, you had this other path that was not power systems. Right. What career path did you not go down, but always thought you? Would?
1: <laughs> well, I think definitely that that could be one of the passes, right? It's, it's to to maybe join an early stage startup, um, at, you know, at Silicon Valley in early days, or maybe I'll I'll maybe found my own company, right, doing some of those stuff like internet uh, startups whatsoever. But the reason why I didn't go that path was because I actually gave it a try. So like in the first and second year uh, of my PhD, I did spend a lot of time on a side project, uh, which is a yeah, which is an app. Uh, it's an expense splitting app to help myself, first of all
0: like expensive yes like
1: expensive in the early days uh okay. i was even competing with them at that time they were one of my competitors and they were pretty Get small out of town. and i I, I seriously thought that i had a chance to beat them all um hmm. but the the problem that i was trying to solve at that time was uh i love traveling with friends at you know at grad school uh when you travel with friends you know, someone pays for, um, you know, the car, someone pays for the hotel, someone pays for the dinner, and then it becomes a whole mess. And nobody's got cash on them at the time. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then people care about this because, you know, we're all, you know, we don't have a lot of money, right? And like we want to make sure that the calculation is done right, <laughs>
0: right? So, and, well, you, and your engineering students. <laughs> yes,
1: exactly. And we're engineering students, right? I mean, I still remember that after one of the trips, nobody wanted to do the math, uh, so we had to pick one of the, you know, one of the people to calculate the, the 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 numbers, and it turned out to be wrong. So someone paid more or unnecessary money to someone else because the calculation was was wrong. You didn't hire that person. <laughs> <laughs> no but but that was a problem right so i experienced that problem myself and 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 you know it's 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 not a very good experience that every time you had to do Mm. that and sometimes it will it will be wrong and also because that was the time when smartphones started to really become a thing everybody started to have like smartphones iphone android phones
0: this is why you're in while you're in la right while i
1: was in la so we're
0: Circa 2011 and mm. 2015, same kind of time period that we saw the boom in solar, yes. the ARRA uh, traction, and basically, you know, the, all of the all of the first years of the Obama administration. Exactly. Like huge, yep. huge focus on on investing in small to medium enterprise, investing in startups, uh, you know, being able to crowdsource funding, all that kind of mm. thing. I mean, what a time. To be it was an exciting time. Yeah, absolutely. Start-up. Yeah, it's
1: like so many things happening. To your point, it was the first generation of the smart grid startups. So,
0: did I hear you right? You launched you launched this on the App Store. You competed with Expensify, and I presume around that time, I remember when I was at Conergy is when I first heard about this, in, this app called Venmo, which now <laughs> everyone knows
1: and uses. Well, at right? that time, yeah, at that time, Venmo didn't even exist. It was before Venmo. Yeah, it was way before Venmo. Yeah, it was like the first generation of apps on the app store. (laughs) What kind of
0: traction did you get with, it's called Receipt Ninja. What kind of traction did you get with Receipt Ninja and what did you learn from that venture? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So great traction uh, initially. Uh, When I first launched the app, I didn't really think of making it as a commercial offering. So I was, I was really trying to solve my own problem, right? So I made an Android app. I released that to the market and I downloaded that myself. And then I started to use that with my friends. What I didn't expect was. It became sort of viral after I uploaded that to the App Store.
0: Well, you used the word ninja. I mean, energy ninja would go viral right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, the
1: name. Yeah, think about yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, the name of recent ninja really was inspired by a popular game at that time. So some of the folks. Fruit ninja. Might, exactly. Yeah, Fruit Ninja. Yeah. I love yeah. it. Yeah, so that was the inspiration. It's like recent ninja, right? You want to split bills, right? It's ninja. <laughs> <laughs> so good. <laughs> yeah. So. Anyway, so after I uploaded that to the app store, it just got viral. It's like a lot of people had the same problems. And then they kept on sending me emails, requesting new features, requesting translation into their own languages. So today, you know, Recent Ninja is still on the market. Uh, it's still on the market. If you go to Android market, uh, you know, you've searched for uh, Recent Ninja, you will still see my app. Um, and And that app was translated into... 10 or 11 different languages by volunteers, by the users. No way. Seriously. For, For free. For free, exactly. It's Dutch, German, you know, Greek, uh you know, 10 eleven different languages and didn't ask for that. Ninja. Yeah. Latest complaint, this app developer never
0: talks to us. I'm, I'm not reading that's an actual complaint. Last updated on February 3rd, 2018, however.
1: Well I, I know that because I stopped really uh continue to you know continue to work on that, but you know when I was working
0: five star ratings as yeah. as as recently as two thousand uh, end of two thousand twenty one. Yeah.
1: It was, it was 4.5. (laughs) A lot of like very good feedback. We got like, uh, free coverage in the media. It was on television. It was on newspaper. Uh, I didn't pay a dollar for marketing at that time.
0: More than a thousand reviews, more than 10,000 downloads. I mean, so, and this is, uh, you know, this is early, early teens. Like Mm many, many, many people would have, would have loved to have that kind of traction, but you saw it as a distraction, (laughs) kind of a dead end. Can you talk a bit about
1: that? Right. So I think what happened after the initial success was, first of all, I really enjoyed that iterative product development process. I was kind of like doing everything myself. You know, I was, uh, you know, I was doing coding myself. I was doing marketing myself. I was doing customer support myself. You know, I respond to customer emails and normally I would like build new features right after receiving their emails so that they can give me a five star for accommodating their needs. That was all awesome, right? Because you know that you're making something that other people are using and people appreciate that, right? So the reason, for example, the reason why that you can, you see, uh, you know, in the, uh, in the, in the, in the app store, that there is a paid version, there's a free version, is because I got emails, multiple emails from the users begging me to pay me.
0: Can I send you money?
1: <laughs> exactly. It's like, I want to show appreciation. <laughs> I really love your app. Can I pay you? I didn't think of that initially. Like I said, this was like a hobby project. This was a side project. But then I made a paid version. I made a free version. And then people, you know, kept on coming to me, asking for more But after more than 200 iterations, I still remember that. It's like 200 iterations of the version. You know, I started with Android first and then I moved on to iOS. There was an Apple version as well, but I didn't keep it. And then Apple just kicked me off. So you couldn't find the Apple version, <laughs> iOS version now, but I did make another version for iPhones, you know, similar concept. Uh, and then gradually we also add like lots of like features that you will see today from Venmo, from, you know, Expensify, like cloud syncing, right? Like, you know, re- uh, receipt matching, you know, there are lots of like um, features, uh, more advanced features, Um, But after those iterations, as I said, like more than 200 iterations, the product itself sort of converged to a point where I didn't see new problems or new challenges to some extent. Because the problem that I was trying to solve at that time was relatively well-defined, just like splitting expenses, Tracking expenses, splitting expenses, settling expenses, that's it. So it's a relatively well-defined problem. It has a pretty clear and straightforward solution as long as you, you can you know, iterate enough on that. So then the question that I had was, do I want to keep doing this forever? Or is this the thing that I really want to put 100% of my time, resources, and I will do this for the next decade? And the answer in my mind at that time was probably not because I couldn't yeah. find the same motivation as I started that, right? Because it was all problem driven. It was all customer pain point driven. It's like, I want to make sure that I'm I'm making something that is useful, something that is impactful to some, to some extent, right? And because I was still at the PhD at that time, You know, I was actually joking with some of my friends at that time. I was was doing like a part-time PhD. I was like ready to quit (laughs) at any time. Um, But when I started to have that, ask that question, it's like, when I think about my career, when I think about the next 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, do I want to keep working on the app or do I want to find something bigger or something that is more fundamental that is going to consume a lot of my time and energy so that I know that this is a much meaningful way to spend my time and to spend my life on. So luckily, I was still at research, right? Luckily, I was still doing a lot of the power system stuff, which is super challenging, which is super hard, right? And then I was like, oh, maybe I wanted to keep doing that or spend more time doing research, trying to figure out, those hard engineering and science problems because it's going to be much more difficult and challenging, but at the same time, much more rewarding if you can really solve those problems. Right. I think when I was young, I was much more impatient about results, right? You want to see downloads. You want to see customer feedback immediately, right? You want to see quick success, Right. That's why a lot of the internet companies were so attractive to young people because right. yeah, it's like Uber, you know, uh, Twitter, Facebook, you know, those stories. Like everybody was attracted to that because it was like success overnight. But when you think about anything in this industry, like power systems, renewable energy, it's a, it's a different it's a different problem. It's a different yeah. dynamics, right? It's a different market mm-hmm. dynamics. You cannot right. imagine. Something magically happened overnight in this industry, right? So that's why I think you know when I when I finished all those reflections myself, I came back to this area, right? And then I started to publish papers. You know, got a lot of citations. I found my enthusiasm for some of the hard problems in this area, and I found it's very challenging, but at the same time, very, very interesting and very, very fundamental problems that we need to solve and very meaningful as well. But I wasn't really thinking of doing a professor, for example, like becoming a professor after the PhD.
0: Academic route.
1: Exactly. The academic route was also part of the option for me, but I don't think that's my goal because for academic, it's all about publications, right? It's all about Ideas, new ideas, new concepts, but they don't care too much about implementation or deployment or how, how, you know, how can you actually take that idea or initial concept to a product that can be used by a lot of people. So, so that's where I find that unique combination of the expertise that I developed during the PhD. And then the product development process or the, you know, the entrepreneurial startup experience that I had in the early stage of my PhD. And then I figured that, okay, if I can apply my expertise to startup to solve a more meaningful problem, then that's probably the best position for me to be in, right? And so far, I enjoy that a lot.
0: And not to denigrate the folks working at Venmo or or Expensify by any means, but it makes... The problem that you were solving looked rather pedestrian and I can understand why it felt to you like the problem's already solved. What value am I adding? I'm competing with folks who are gonna succeed. Hey, I appreciate you listening to this Thursday episode. If you're new to Suncast, you may not even know that we have Tuesday and Thursday episodes. And our Tuesdays typically are shorter, but even if they're not, they're geared towards more tactical subject matter expertise. And I wanted to point one out for you. On February 28th, we've got a conversation that I think those of you in particular who are looking at the solar sector and growing into the large-scale side of the business, uh, will want to tune into, you know, trackers dominate 80% of the utility or large distributed generation sector of the ground mount market for solar. And we've recorded an episode with my friend Dell Jones over at Trina that captures the five ways that you can maximize Profits when integrating trackers into your projects. Don't miss out. And there are so many other great Tactical Tuesdays as well. Start with that one. Hey, I know you are a savvy listener. Heck, you're listening to Suncast, and you've probably, as a result, heard of a little company called Sungrow. If you're not using Sungrow inverters on your projects, I would love to better understand why. They are the inverter of choice for many of the EPCs that I know. SunGrow is the number one in gigawatts deployed. They've got the top bankability in the industry. HexSolve uses them for the majority of their projects. And you may not even know, but SunGrow has the largest R&D team in the power electronics industry. These three key points alone have convinced most of the major US developers to prefer SunGrow. They now experience a diversified supply chain, local service team, patented containerized product, all with their seamless, pain-free commissioning. Look, imitation is the highest form of flattery. So why spend all of your cycles on what inverter to use when the largest EPC in the land has already done the heavy lifting for you? You can have their same experience for your projects. See how at mysuncast.com forward slash sungrow. I'm curious from the very first thesis of, uh, I think Singularity Energy was originally like, how do we get the, how do we, how do we use the measurement uh, and microgrid knowledge that Winbo has accumulated? What assumptions did you have challenged in that first or second year of starting the business? And I'm curious what you've learned from that as you now are thinking about taking it from seed to a series a venture company yep. that has something that's ventureable.
1: I think the you know the biggest thing in the first one or two years is really try to find the customer problems to your point. Because you know coming out of academia you have a set of expertise and you have a set of potential solutions to the problem. But you may not know what problem is worth solving or what problem is worth Using your expertise, right? Because again, this is the difference between like running a startup versus running a lab. Right? So startup is all customer driven, it's all like problem-driven. The lab is more all idea-driven, right? It's all concept-driven, right? So how can you find that right balance? Right? It's like, how can you find some problems that is significant, that is important, that is worth solving. And you know that that problem specifically can be solved by your expertise because you need both, right? You couldn't just find a problem that you couldn't, you couldn't solve. You don't have the expertise. You couldn't just like, use your expertise trying to find the problems that that, that expertise can, can solve, right? So it's a, it's a very tricky balance. You know, when I first started a company, I was trying to apply some of my previous research on microgrid, on energy management, specifically for EV charging, for battery storage. I was trying to commercialize that solution. So the the first concept or the first pitch that I made to some of the early prospects were all about that. It's like, I can help you manage your battery storage to optimally charge and discharge to help you save more money. That was the initial pitch. So when I started to test that idea or concept with those prospects, first of all, they asked a lot of questions, of course. Right? How do you compete with the competitors? You, know, you are not the first one, right? Um, you know, I, I was always like, we have better technology. You know, this is because of my PhD, right? We know how best uh, that we can deliver those results. We have some comparison, analysis, better algorithms. It was very, very tough. Because it's not unique, right? It's like you're competing with maybe a dozen of other companies who are claiming that they all all have the best algorithms or they all have the best, you know, uh, intelligence, right? Although I come from Harvard, come from, you know, with with a lot of expertise, people may believe in that, but it's still going to be a very hard sell, right? Yeah. So, So that's why, you know, as those conversations, I started to ask them, it's like, you know, what are the problems that you have with... Storage or with your energy system or whatsoever. And then that's where we got a lot of those carbon questions. As I said in the beginning, right? Like people started to ask us, oh, how does battery storage impact my carbon emissions? Right? Because there were some studies uh, showing that battery storage may actually increase your emissions. Because when you think about battery storage, it doesn't really generate any power. Right? it's on It's only storing power, and because of the round round trip efficiency loss, you may need to charge more than what is actually stored in the in the in the battery and you need to know what is the carbon content of the power is being stored so that you know oh this energy storage is clean or not right so that's why we got a lot of interesting questions about that right and then I started to generate some patterns from other customers, it's not only one customer who asks about that question, right? And it's like multiple customers ask all the same questions around the same topic, which is like carbon emissions, carbon accounting, uh, how to incorporate carbon into your energy management so that you're not only saving money, but you also want to make sure that you're saving carbon, at least for some of the customers, not everybody, right? So that's when I realized, okay, there is a clear gap On the market. People want to reduce their emissions. It's a it's their goal. But they don't have the solution or they don't have the data analytics and tools to help them achieve that goal. And this is a problem that I can solve because carbon is one layer of the problem that I'm trying to solve, right? It's it's dependent on the underlying power system, it's dependent on the power flow, you know, the you know, the smart grid, you know, whatever. I have expertise on that. So the carbon is something that I can extend my expertise, right? So that's why, you know, I did a lot of work and a lot of analysis myself, you know, look at the data and then talk to the people who are more familiar with that issue and gradually started to build new expertise and new capabilities around that carbon world and then connect that with my power system background. It's kind of like the unique combination of carbon Makes and sense. power system and because it's related, and then I have a unique advantage.
0: I'm wondering how did early investors, you, men- you mentioned energy impact partners, uh, Shale and team are phenomenal, very smart. They love to back uh, rising stars. Like uh, like Singularity and Energy and Arcadia is, is a portfolio customer among many others. I'm curious, how did the process of going out for this seed round and the pushback or mm-hmm. the refinement of thinking from investors challenge, mm-hmm. change, refine the business model? What yep. specific ways did that process help grow your business?
1: The seed round was relatively smooth. But the, I would say the hardest part was a pre seed round. It was the first institutional money that we got. Uh-huh. And that was like two years ago. It's before, you know, before the seed round. Okay. and How much was that, if you don't mind saying? For the pre seed round, it was like half a million. Yeah. 500K. Yeah. So I would say that 500K was the hardest. And then at that time, you know, I had only one engineer working with me. We had like a very early stage um, MVP of the product and we didn't have a lot of paying customers. I mean, we had like a few paying customers and a bunch of- Congratulations to have <laughs> right. customers that are left. Exactly. The customers are, are very important and, and that's the reason why I kept on working on this, right? It's because we got yeah. customer traction. You know, we I kept on hearing that questions and I know that there's something there. <laughs> Otherwise, I will- Maybe switch to another direction, or keep searching for the next thing, right? But that pre-seed round was transformational for us because uh, that was kind of like the first endorsement or the first stamp that you got, uh, and then that helped that, that helped us expand the team from one person, two people to three people, mm-hmm. and then start getting more traction and more uh, validation points. For the seed round, you asked about what changed. I think the biggest change for the seed round was the utilities that we're working with. Ah, Because Eversource was not working with us in the pre-seed round. Because, you know, like from the very beginning, I had a, you know, like I, I wasn't so sure that utility is going to be our customer. Because... It is well known that utility sector is a very, very hard market for startups. People normally would encourage you to stay away from that market because it's not for startups. They don't work in a startup-friendly environment, right? So, so I tried to pitch to some of the utilities in the early days of Singularity, and it didn't really end up well. So I wasn't really focusing on the utility market after that. It's
0: too bad. You were you were about six years late for getting um Andrew Tang uh, before he left PG and <laughs> he you know, famously invested in uh in uh, OPower and others, right? Like yeah exactly the kind of partner that you needed. Right, right.
1: But but in general, it's 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 not very you know, utilities are not very startup friendly, especially for very, very early stage startups. It's not very friendly. So that's why I tried to stay away from that because I want to focus on you know, the, you know, the market or the customers who would care more about the solutions. That's like the end you know, customers, some of the service providers. That was kind of our original pitch for the pre-C round. Utilities were not part of the picture. But for the C round, something interesting happened when I was raising the round was... First of all, Eversource reached out to us. Um, You know, they had this problem about how to account for line losses, blah, blah, blah. Uh, And then we started to work with them on a pilot. At the same time, we also got traction with MISO, which is a major great operator in the country. So those two pilots or those two deals completely changed our narrative or our business plan for the seed round. Because initially, we were not thinking of touching, even touching on the supply side, right? It's like the grid operators, utilities. Now it became a significant part of the business because if you really want to unlock the full potential of the solution, you cannot only look at the demand side or the user side. You have to work with the supply side as well. So that's why we changed our narrative or our business model a little bit and then trying to create a flying well between the supply side and demand side for this type of carbon intelligence or carbon data analytics. And that resonates pretty well with investors, with uh, our new customers as well, because that will give us like a unique combination of, you know, not only the expertise that I was just talking about, but but also the business channels or some of the commercial Advantages against others who might be solving the same problem, but hmm. only from one side. Yeah.
0: You've got MISO and EverSource. You're trying to validate a product market fit, and you really kind of winnow the the wheat from the chaff and, and get down to the core essence of the business. You've got Energy Impact Partners, at least interested in helping in leading a a, a pre or a seed round. Are folks like Shale? Uh, our folks at Sparrow? coaching you along on this narrative or are you in a sense kind of trying to figure out how to win their business at the same time as winning Eversource and MISO? I'm curious how much was on you and your team versus the, the, the cloud of mm-hmm. witnesses that you were hoping to attract around you.
1: So it was, I would say like the, the team, like our team is driving those mm-hmm. narrative or thinking, Yeah, but the investors, advisors are definitely giving you feedback Right. It's kind of like you want to see that positive feedback loop so that you know, oh, this might be a direction that makes sense.
0: Were you engaging with them weekly, daily?
1: You mean today or?
0: No, back, back then, back as you, were, yeah. as you were, as you were, as you were modifying this narrative, were they, were they beneficiaries or they were, or were they They were pretty serious. Yeah. Or?
1: They were already pretty serious about us. Yeah. So, you know, I would say maybe biweekly, that's probably the frequency of the conversation. And they asked a lot of questions. Right. Because, you know, they will ask that, how does this work? Right. What are the problems that you're trying to solve? What is your business model? You know, how are you going to prove that this is going to work? Right. But at the same time.
0: Must have been exhausting for you because you're managing <laughs> two sides of a conversation. You have to convince both of them yeah, that you're yeah,
1: right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and, and mostly I, I think something that I, I something that I can still remember today was when we were discussing about those uh, investment we didn't really sign Eversource or MISO yet. We were still having conversation. When we closed the deal on the investment side, we also closed the deal on the customer side.
0: Were they contingent? Do you feel like Eversource is
1: waiting? No, I don't I don't think they were they were thinking. Yeah. They were just like, you know, they you know, they didn't know that we were talking to investors at that time, right? They were just like evaluating this solution internally, right? Like lots of meetings, lots of meetings, but yeah, it turned out to be the same timing. <laughs>
0: <clears throat> On the flip side, yeah. were EIP and Sparrow looking at it as contingent? Like, were do you feel like they were so. waiting to see? I don't think so.
1: They completely believe in the vision, and then yeah. they saw the potential. Right? They saw that. Yeah. Oh, this makes sense. Yeah.
0: And they, for them, it's yeah. like if it's not ever source, it's going to be exactly. somebody. Exactly. It's not yeah. my it'll, yeah. it'll be the it'll be Exactly. I, exactly. Yeah.
1: yeah. And I think one of the one of the unique value that EIP is bringing to the table is because they have a lot of uh, utility backgrounds right like they have their own perspectives on those business problems that their lps are facing so that's why i think it's kind of like a validation of our own vision or our own thinking and it resonates with them because they were looking at the same problems and they heard that from their own you know lps and 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 partners right and then that's kind of like when i felt like oh this is it Right. This, is, this is probably going to be a pretty compelling and defensible path for us to move forward. How many
0: uh, entities like EIP had you gone out to and how did you ultimately kind of kind of select EIP?
1: I mean, initially it was definitely a lot. I mean, like I said, for pre-seed round, for seed round, it must be like hundreds of investors that I talked to. But we were pretty lucky for the seed round because uh, Sparrow who ended up being our lead investor was among the first group of investors that I talked to. So it just turned out to be the first one became the actual investor. And, and Sparrow was another inbound to us actually. <laughs> so they reached oh, out wow. to us. Yeah. I think they saw one of the deal books uh, from our pre seed investors uh, so they like, oh, this is super interesting. They're looking at climate tech. They're looking at data infrastructure and this resonates with them. And then they reach out to me. Uh, we had a pretty good initial conversation and then went through a almost like two months and two and a half months, like due diligence process and started to develop some close relationship with them. And one of the partners there is Mark Tarpening, who is a co-founder of Tesla uh, before Elon Musk. So Mark has a deep understanding of the industry as well. And he understood because he's also an engineer himself. (laughs) So it's like, sometimes when you talk to investors, if they don't have the technical background, it's a little bit hard for them to really understand the value of your solution or of your business, right? So as I said, it was very lucky for us to find the right investor in the relatively early stage of the fundraising process. And we went through that. And then we were also having those like Eversource MISO deals happening at the same time. Everything kind of like, just like, you know, like became uh, unified at the end of the day. So that's kind of like how we, you know, ended up with that $4.5 million round. And it was pretty smooth.
0: Well, congratulations. It sounds... Yeah, uh, you make it look easy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we were just lucky, like I said. It was it was yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I want to touch I want
0: to touch on that, right? Yeah. Cuz luck can be manufactured <laughs> in my opinion. And so a question I had for you that I think points to the whether were you lucky or not is uh how if it all did the UCLA and Harvard network help or benefit?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, that was even before the pre-seed round. So, when I first started the company, we got a commercialization grant from the Harvard Office of Technology Development, and then from Harvard, we also got our first customer uh which is h b s uh and and you know they are one of the early customers I was talking about, like right? you know who brought up the carbon conversation to us right and uh we we had a lot of very useful conversation with, you know, Harvard sustainability office, you know, facilities, you know, uh, we did a lot of customer discoveries with them. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of like the, the very early stage of the company, how I pivoted to carbon. It was all because of Harvard. Yeah. Uh, and then after that, you know, from Harvard, we got the SBR grant, the NSF, the government, the government grant uh, to help us really kind of like take the initial concept to the next level so that we form the company, we form the entity, we start hiring. Uh, and then from that SBR grant, then it's like the pre-seed round. It's like 500 K pre-seed round. And then from the pre-seed round, it's, it, then it's a, it's a C round. Yeah.
0: So for those paying attention, right, you've got 50 K or so angel round family, friends and family, uh, and as we call the three F's friends, family and fools. Um, then you've got a million. Uh, from SBIR and then 500, which was, as you said, the hardest. So even after a million in SBIR and uh, support of Harvard, it was difficult to raise a half a million follow on pre seed round. But that roughly a million and a half in capital allowed you the runway to go and ask for
1: a big seed so, round. So, first of all, the $1 million SBIR grant was. At seed round, not the pre seed round.
0: Oh, it was at the seed. Okay, so it's after pre. And the SBR are,
1: there are two phases of SBR. Uh-huh. So there is a phase one, there is a phase two. So the phase one SBR is a little bit more than two hundred k. And if you finish the first phase, and if the results are positive, then you can apply to the phase two, which is which is the one million dollar part. So the SBR that I got before the pre seed round was a phase one SBR grant. And that is about like 200K to get me to the pre seed round, which is like 500K. And then from 500K to $4.5 million seed round plus that $1 million additional SBR grant. Yeah. That's the trajectory.
0: <laughs> so I'm just trying to help folks get a picture. So 2019 to 2022, roughly three years, is formulate the idea, go get early customer buy-in, Get early team, which you haven't talked about, um, and get through phase one. Yes. validating your initial your initial product idea. Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah, and then it's a pre seed round, and then after the pre seed round is like the seed round. Yeah.
0: Yeah, pre seed round. Now you've raised this. Um, you've raised this half a million, and the purpose is to hire the key few two or three, maybe four people who can help yes. you.
1: Validate yeah. that this yeah. idea yeah.
0: that you think you validated can scale. Yes,
1: and then mm-hmm. another major milestone for the pre seed round is to raise the to raise a seed round <laughs> because you know the five hundred k is not is not enough. Everybody knows about it. It's, it's kind of an accelerator program similar to Y C, right? Similar to some of the other accelerator program. We actually went through the. Um, have you heard of like Urban uh, Urban Next program?
0: No, Urban Next.
1: So we went through this program as part of that pre-seed round. They also invested okay. um, some money, right? And then we got some other investors. Uh, and then we went through a six-month program designed to help us raise the seed round, basically. So yeah, like I said, you know, part of the pre-seed round is to hire the team, keep validating, you know, keep getting more traction. How
0: do you find time
1: for all of this when you're also
0: <laughs> supposed to be building a company?
1: Well, this is part of the company building, by the way. Like yeah. fundraising is one of the most important tasks for startup founder, right? You know, in the early stage, you have to do everything. Yeah, this is no different than more than 10 years ago, I was working on Recent Ninja. As I said, I was doing everything this time was even more because I also need to handle all the investors, like all the fundraising. You know, you need to recruit a team, right? You need to build a brand. You need to work with designers. You need to work with engineers. It's in the early days. It's everything. Absolutely. Everything. Yeah.
0: So as, as we mentioned, you are going through these programs, you're raising a a pre-seed and a seed validating the the product and you early on before the pre-seed had one engineer. Yeah. How do you think about building the team? Who's the right next uh, sort of? St- you're you're at twelve people now ish. How do you go from two people <laughs> to twelve people? And I'm thinking, just mm-hmm. framework wise, think. Right. Walk me through the sequential. What your investors expected that you needed? How what you needed from a commercial perspective? What were the key players that you needed to put on the right. field?
1: So team building, in my mind, is the most important part of the startup. Because everything you do is done by people, right? So it's like people first, team first. That's absolutely number one priority for us. My own story about hiring might not be super useful to others because, you know, I'll I'll say this again, but I was really lucky (laughs) to find the people who work with me now. Really, really lucky just similar to how lucky I was to get the Eversource, you know, the the investment, it was pure luck. The first engineer that I hired, his name is Ryan, by the way. He's still working with with us now. Do you know Greentown Labs in Boston area? Yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. So we were part of a Greentown program. And then at the end of the program, Greentown had a celebration event. So, like, they invited all the startups to give a pitch to the audience, and I did the pitch. You know, it was, like, very early stage uh, version of the pitch. And then a young guy came to me after the pitch, and it's right, Yeah, he told me that, oh, I'm looking for a climate tech job, right, and your company sounds interesting, and this might be something that I could help you build. Uh, he sent me a resume after the, after the event. I had a you know, coffee chat with him. And then he decided to do a part-time job with me first. Right. So I hire him as a like a freelancer to some extent, right? And then help me build some of the early versions of the demos uh, for the customers. The MVP, right? And then after I got that phase one SBIR grant, I finally had the money to hire him full-time. And that's why yep. the SBR grant was crucial for me to hire him as the first engineer to work with me. And then it's no longer me, myself, right? It's kind of like mm-hmm. me and Ryan as a as an initial team.
0: How did you know who to surround yourself and uh, Ryan with initially?
1: So initially, I would say it's all about engineers, right? It's all about like engineering resources because you're trying to build a product, right? So a lot of the focuses were... Um, engineering resources yeah and then gradually you also need to expand to have some commercial hires right so um that's when we hired carl who is on the team uh for you know business development for some of strategy stuff commercial strategy stuff uh he joined the team right after the pre seed round the 500k pre-seed round because that's when we need to start ramping up on the commercial side a little bit, right? And then, I, and and today, if you look at our uh, website, we have only call on the commercial side. All the rest of the team are, you know, data scientists, software engineers, you know, product. So that's kind of like the rough, you know, percentage of the people focusing on, on building versus people who focus on selling. Yeah. So those are the two types of people that you need in startup, basically people who can sell and then people who can build.
0: That was amazing. Actually, I, like what you just said is, is gold for any founder listening for any entrepreneur, hoping to someday step out and build their own company. I mean, mm-hmm. I have gone through the doldrums as a media company founder that you're describing, you know, it's a very different overhead, uh, but it is a similar narrative, and mm-hmm. the founder has to be able to both build and sell. And it's the reason that the you know, the founder syndrome is so is so common. The founder gets so caught up in and so so sort of tied to the product and selling that they are not in, inherently and don't grow the skills to be good at managing people and managing the fundraising and managing the process. How how have you grown in that regard.
1: You're absolutely right. I think in a very early stage is definitely different from our current stage and it will definitely different from the future stage, right? I think, you know, as I said, like in a very, very early stage, you have to do kind of everything, right? You have to build, you have to sell, uh, you have to raise, right? Um, You have to do everything. But gradually you started to hire people who can do better than what you can do in those areas, right? That's why you need better engineers. That's why you need better business people. That's why you need lots of other talents on the team. Uh, And then to your point, then your responsibility or your role will change a little bit to managing people, right? To managing the high level stuff, right? So like, but you still want to keep very close to the market. You still want to keep very close to the, you know, to the customers because, you know you still need to understand where the market is going and you still have to make those tough decisions uh you know strategic decisions where the company is going right where we should focus on but you definitely need to spend a lot of more time on managing the team on hiring on you know like making sure that everybody is on the same page you know i just started to realize that I spend a lot of time talking to my team separately, together, trying to make sure that, you know, we break you know, uh, you know, like I said, everybody is on the same page. And then the CEO's job is to bring everybody along. Right? It's to bring it's to make sure that whatever decision that we are making, whatever direction that we're going, we are all on the same page. I think that is critical.
0: When you think about early advice that you got, was there anything that you gleaned that you feel was particularly foundational insight in hindsight that ensured the success thus far of your own journey as a CEO founder or of the company?
1: I think a lot of the insights that I got were from that recent Ninja experience, I would say. It it wasn't really from like mentors or the others that I heard from because I my feeling was you have to do it <laughs> right like you have to experience it yourself so that you will figure out what works and what doesn't work and i think a lot of the the men's side uh, or a lot of the, the frameworks right that i that i think about uh the problems that we're facing i would say that experience you know, a decade ago uh, was instrumental to me. Like how to deal with customer requests, right? It's like the dynamics between product development and then the customer response, right? I think that was because to me, that was the core piece of the company, because the company's mission, you know, is to solve people's problems, right? It's like you, you're you're helping your customer have a better life, basically, right? Like you are solving some of their problems, right? It's like, maybe in different ways, but that should always be your goal. And then I would also say, maybe some of the research experience is also very important to frame the problems, right? Because when you think about the research, when you think about the academic training, it's all about how to solve a unsolved problem, right? It might be a technical problem, but but the but the the framework or the steps would be very similar, right? So that's why I think the you know this is my personal belief is like I think the PhD training could be helpful to entrepreneurs in general. <laughs> might not might not be for everybody, but I think that process has a lot of commonality in real life or in business world as well, because. Fundamentally, when you think about entrepreneurs versus professors or researchers, they're all trying to explore something that nobody has explored yet, right? It's Mm -hmm. like they're all alone, right? They're all alone. And they may have their team, right? Professors have their own research team. You know, entrepreneurs have your own, you know, um, uh, team. And then you, you, you are leading something that is so frontier, that is so so new right and then there are a lot of risks that you have to manage how do you solve you know how do you deal with those challenges every day new problems every day right business problems you know scientific problems those might be different problems solution might be different but the 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 fundamental challenges are the same it's like you're trying to do something that nobody has done before how are you gonna do it? <laughs> right. How can you I love that. how can you achieve that? How can you overcome those challenges and difficulties? It's the same thing at the end of the day, in my mind. So so I would say the you know, the PhD experience, the receipt ninja, you know, experience taught me different things, but those things are uniquely combined together in what I'm doing now.
0: Winbo. Are there any particular resources that you would point folks to if they uh, that have been helpful for you? It might be a book, it might be something like Farnham Street, which is something I read that is a is a blog on on mental m- mental models, etc. Like, what reading and and resources have you relied on that have really given you a sense of confidence about your direction?
1: Now, personally, I love reading a lot of the startup stories book. You know, for example, uh, Hatching Twitter is a book about the early founding story of Twitter. Uh, I recently read uh, a book called The Founders, which is a book about uh, early eBay story. You know, Elon Musk and others. I think I've read a lot of those books, like like you know, Uber story, Airbnb story, Facebook story. You know, and also some stories that are, you know not successful stories or like, like bad blood, right? Like, you know, uh, the WeWork story, I, c- I can't remember the book's name. Right. So I, I think, you know, the reason why I love reading those books is, is because like, when you look at the successful company today, you don't know the backstories at all. Yeah. Right. It's like, even, yeah, even That's for right. you, nicole, when you look at the Singularity website, you don't know anything about the company, to be honest, right? It's like- It's why why I'm doing this interview, my friend. Exactly. So there are lots of like stories. There are lots of um, uh, information that you couldn't tell just by looking at the company website because the company website is for the customers, right? It's, It's not for people who want to understand what is happening behind the scene. So that's why- you know, when you, when, you, when you start reading some of the, uh, the good books about the startups, not the marketing books, right? I mean, there are also a lot of books which are purely marketing their companies, which is useless. Um, but if you can look at some of those books are, you know, that are trying to tell a true story of what happened, then that is fascinating. You know, you will, you will find a lot of useful insights Or you will just realize that oh I'm experiencing the same thing now. It's like when I was reading some of the books about you know um, the 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 book about Twitter. uh, You know in the early days they were really struggling. Like you know they were you know they tried something and then they tried something else. It didn't work. Um, You know when you when you read those parts and you were like oh this is something that pretty similar to what we're doing right now. And then you know that you are not alone.
0: Well Wimbo I'll share one with you if you haven't read it. It's uh, one that when I interviewed. Chris Voss, who wrote one of my favorite books, "Never Split the Difference" uh, on mm-hmm. negotiating, he had one book face out on the on the cabinet behind mm-hmm. him, right? And like for example, like right now, the book I have face out is Tony Fadell's book "Build," mm-hmm. which is fascinating. Mm-hmm. If you haven't read it, that's a separate thing. But the book that he had out was called uh, "Culture Code" by Dan Coyle. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually included it in uh, we did these twelve days of Christmas with my buddy uh, Paul uh, Webb back in uh, at the end of the year, 12 Days mm-hmm. of Christmas. And it was one of the books that we included because it is so foundational to any early founder to understand how to build what he calls the culture code and the importance of the community. And like you said, any founder has um, really two key jobs. Once you get to the place where you've already learned how to build um, and how to raise money, your, your job is to raise more money so that you can hire the right mm-hmm. people. And, um, and, and it's just, uh, that is is the Mm -hmm. circle, find the Mm -hmm. right people, get more money to find the more people to get more money (laughs) to find more people. Culture code was one of those books that, um, I read and some of my coaching clients have read that, um, really unlocks, you know, you kind of start to go, okay, I'm, this is both affirming and I'm learning.
1: My experience was, you know, you, you want to read a lot of those framework books, which is. Important because you need to know what what frameworks or what you know exists, um, and then you also want to read experiences. And then most importantly, is like you need to experience that yourself because otherwise you can do it. You know, otherwise you, you need to receive <laughs> or something similar than that, right? It's like you know, you need experience to yeah. really internalize whatever you know books that you read or whatever learnings that you get because that's the hardest part because. You know, like you can, you can read like 100 books or 500 books about how to start a startup. But if you don't do that yourself, right, then all the learnings are not going to really be there for you. And, and sometimes it's like, it's it's very similar to, you know, in my mind, it's very similar to how we, you know, how we grow as, as a person, right? like you, you, you get a lot of advice from your mentors, from your teacher, from your parents, but you will still fail, right you will still have to go through that process you exactly to. you have to you have to fall yeah. right you have to you know taste the failure and then and then and then you know hope that next time you won't fail again right so
0: <laughs> everyone needs a receipt ninja and some, some some are uh not as successful a I'll call it a dead end even though it wasn't for you, but some of them yeah. are not they're a painful um miserable sort of fiery ball coming out of the sky towards sort of failure that investors like myself and folks that I'm, I'm regularly in contact with look for, they look for the receipt ninja in your background. Has this person said no to something Mm. that, uh, have they tried something? Have they driven something to, to, to point of success or failure? Have they walked away from something that could have been stability, Mm. but did, but, but didn't represent like some sort of growth and change. Mm. And that is the kind of founder right. that the clean energy revolution and, and our climate challenges require right now. Yeah,
1: I think that's the only way to grow, basically, right? And that's the only way for you to really internalize um, those learnings and, and those you know insights that you may get from the books or from others' experience, right? I mean- Totally yeah.
0: agree. As my wife says, you got to put the book down and start doing what the book says to do uh, or challenging whether it's accurate- well, for those who've appreciated the art of our conversation and are super intrigued now by Singularity Energy, how can they find you and where do you like to engage with folks? Uh,
1: if anybody is interested in learning what we're doing, uh, please go to singularity.energy, which is our website, to you know get to know some of the problems that we talked about today. Uh, you can also register a free account uh, to see some of the real-time data that we publish there. Uh, just remember, the data is not perfect, as we already talked about. We're you know we're actually working yeah. with others to make uh, better data. But uh, if you want to understand, you know, for example, your carbon intensity in your region, you know, what is the carbon content of my grid? Uh, that's where you can find those information. Uh, for people who are working at companies uh, who are looking at sustainability, you know, how can how can you incorporate carbon into your uh, you know, business decisions, you know, feel free, to, feel free to reach out to us, you know, happy to have some uh, introduction calls to learn more about your needs and then see if there is anything that we can help you with.
0: Fantastic. Well, before I ask the final question, I want to give a nod to our friend Ilias Frankel, who I've known for years uh, as a growth expert and uh, just a sage uh, to have on uh, anybody's team. And he's obviously uh, doing wonderful things to help expand the visibility of singularity energy and thanks to Ilias for bringing uh, Wimbo into my field of view I've learned so much so much today from you Wimbo well, let's end today with what I call a bold prediction when you think about uh, the decarbonization of our grid by 2050 what do you think is the linchpin problem we've still got to solve to get us there what's holding us back what's in your crystal ball
1: That's a, you know, that's a great question. (laughs) There are so many things, right? So I think in my opinion, the storage is going to be that critical piece of the puzzle that we need to solve in order to achieve the grand vision of a 100% 24-7 carbon-free world. Because as we all know, You know, renewables, they have intermittency problems, right? Um, And currently the power grid is a real-time system, meaning that you have to balance your supply and demand perfectly uh, in real time. And that is going to be a huge challenge if we want to really achieve that vision, right? Without energy storage, it's going to be even impossible, right? I mean, there are a lot of studies showing that it's relatively easy for us to achieve maybe 70%, 80%, uh, maybe 90%, mm-hmm. right? But if you want to close that, the 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 gap there between 90% and maybe 100%, I don't see any way to achieve that without like large deployment of storage and maybe long duration storage on the mm-hmm. grid. Otherwise we have to we have to admit that it's so hard to achieve. Maybe 95% is enough. Or maybe, you know, in the future, the grid is going to be 90 or 90% of the time we rely on wind and solar and maybe geothermal and nuclear. And then that last 5 or 10%, we still have to rely on natural gas or other, you know, uh, technologies because you need flexible resources that can quickly ramp up and ramp down to meet those changes, right? Because that's a, like I said, that's a uniqueness of the power system itself.
0: Yeah. I'll note that on, on our way out on this conversation, uh, on the date of our recording, I don't, I don't know how much uh, behind the scenes this is for for many, but it's often, mm-hmm. you know, six, eight, 12 weeks before right. we publish. Um, but on the date of our recording, I published today an episode with Hugh McDermott at ESS Inc. And his answer to this very question is, essentially and naturally so because he's at ESS it's the exact same answer and this is a guy who uh is you know commercializing long long duration storage um, and a specific type of chemistry for long duration storage if anybody's interested in understanding sort of the next step in what Wimbo just said for his and you haven't listened for his answer and you haven't listened to Hugh McDermott's episodes really I would really encourage folks to go listen to that and and there are a handful of others I think that uh, I would wager 40% of the answer volume to this question is we have to figure out energy storage.
1: Or we have to just be okay with the reality that we'll never get to 100%. You know, as I said, yeah, maybe 90% is good enough, right? It's like that, that last 5 to 10% is okay, right? But if the goal is about 100% 24-7, then you have to crack it. Otherwise, technically speaking, it's it's not going to be possible. Unless we unlock some completely different technology, like like the fusion, right? So, some something totally different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the
0: biggest biggest news at the end of uh, last year was the fusion, about fusion yes, potential. Yes, yes. Uh, so, well, yeah, <laughs> uh, I think stable diffusion is probably the biggest. Uh, <laughs> so, so the biggest thing most people are focused on right now. How is AI gonna have gonna have yeah. a big impact? Well, Wimboshi is the Founder and CEO of Singularity Energy, and uh, genuinely one of the most insightful interviews I have engaged in in uh, in many months. I'm really grateful for the time that you've given us. I'm sure that folks are gonna wanna reach out to you. I'm sure that folks are gonna find uh, the problems that you're solving interesting and connective tissue for problems they are solving. And that's why we do this show. So thanks for taking a couple hours out of your day to regale us with your story.
1: Thank you for having me. Oh, wow.
0: You just got an earful of some of the best advice, insight, founder, knowledge I have had on the show in a while. I mean, we definitely get sweet content with folks like, I mentioned Hugh McDermott and Mary Powell and John Berger. And, you know, like there are folks that have built massive companies that have come on to Suncast. And I I still listen to interviews like what we just witnessed with Wenbo. And my jaw drops because there's still so much to learn as we engage on the front lines of the clean energy revolution. So you, my friend, have just been served a real treat. I hope that you are able to savor it. I hope that you will let us know how it benefits you. What did you learn? What are your takeaways? I have a dozen or more takeaways. I've just been clipping away as I was doing that interview. All of the of the goodies, the nuggets that Wenbo shared about his journey that we were able to share together. So I'd love to hear from you. We always post on LinkedIn whenever the episode drops and you can easily find how to reach all of those posts and our other socials by going to mysuncast.com, clicking on the episodes or searching for this episode, Singularity Energy and Wenbo. Uh, I'll tell you, most often I find that Even on the day of publishing, I can search Suncast and the guest's name, and it is the top result or in the top results. So it's not hard to find our blog post about this episode. I'd love to get your feedback, and I'd love to know, who else like this should we be interviewing on Suncast? As we dig in, what questions resonated? How would you advise me to modify and improve on the interview flow? Look, after 550-plus episodes, I'm still learning, still growing, and still love these kinds of founder interviews and episodes i love as well that you have given so much of your time and effort in learning alongside us here in our executive profiles have you checked out our tactical practical tuesday episodes which we call tactical tuesdays we have evolved that platform as well uh if you would like to be involved in one of our custom episodes for tactical tuesday or if you've got something to share or your company would like to be featured on Suncast, please reach out Nico at mysuncast.com or just go to mysuncast.com and fill out your information and let us know that you'd like to hear from us. And I'd also love to hear from you if you're just a listener that wants to provide insight into the kind of uh, listening that you engage in, you can take our listener survey. It's super easy to find on the homepage. Maybe the last thing that would be super valuable for Suncast generally is help other folks find us. The easiest way to do that is go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash Suncast and leave a five-star rating and review your ebullient and maybe effervescent love for the podcast if if that is how you feel about it. We've got more than 70 at last count reviews of the podcast on the various platforms but ratethispodcast.com forward slash Suncast makes it super easy to do it in less than five minutes and it probably is the most valuable thing that you could do to help us reach more folks i'd like to ask you to tune back in next week for our tactical tuesdays and our long form executive profile just like this one where we will be bringing you executive and founder stories from the front lines of the clean energy revolution to help increase your influence and income thank you for tuning in and thanks our sponsors for helping continue to make this free for you each and every week so that you can learn and grow with us if you'd like to consider how you could partner. As one of our sponsors, well, that's on the website as well. I direct you to go check out mysuncast.com. And as always, remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.